You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. One day when I was uh, a young man, uh, there was a particular neighbor kid who was ironically probably my closest best friend, but he had a little bit of a rough childhood. Um, His dad went off the nom and came back and kind of messed with him and he later got uh, Agent Orange and and ended up dying of cancer. And, And my friend would sometimes take out his traumatic experiences on our friendship. And so one day, my friend was picking a fight with me, and, um, and I didn't understand why, because I didn't do anything wrong. In fact, I hadn't seen him in a couple days, and I didn't know why he wanted to fight. And I remember talking to my dad, and my dad said this powerful thing. He said, Matt, sometimes it takes a bigger man not to fight than it does to fight. And that was huge, but I didn't know what it meant later at school when other kids were mocking me and teasing me and making fun of me, because my friend was trying to start a fight with me that still to this day, I didn't understand. <clears throat> so later, it progressed to where we were at home and uh, I got talked into coming out to play a basketball game and sure enough he was guarding me and sure enough everything started to explode in a moment and uh, I remember looking at him and saying my dad says it takes a bigger man not to fight than to fight that lasted about five more minutes (laughs) until the two of us are throwing punches at each other And there's something about fighting, right? There's something about pain and trauma and life that brings out fighting in us, isn't there? I mean, what would it take, what would it take for us to actually put our weapons down? And maybe the only way we can actually get to that is ask this question, what's the actual advantage of putting our weapons down? Now, when I use the analogy of weapons, usually I'm in, a, in a fight with a friend, you're not pulling out a sword or a spear or a gun. Usually, I do read the news, occasionally things get a lot out of control, but For the most part, though, I mean this in the emotional sense. Have you ever noticed that when, for those of you who are married, when your spouse says something to you that particularly irritates you the right way, have you ever noticed your first response is to do what? Attack back? Or to put up a shield and get defensive? Yeah, but I wouldn't have if you hadn't. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, no, I don't know at all what you're talking about. She does, but... I don't have a clue. See, our natural response when attacked is to attack or to defend or to first defend and then attack. But what would it take for us to actually put down our swords and our shields? What would it take for us to actually drop the spears and the nets? What would it take for us to actually walk away from the fight for just a moment? Well, there's a famous story. I love history. Of, of a saint, his name, and I'm probably botching this because I don't speak Latin, but his, his name is Telemachus. And Telemachus became famous because he is the one responsible for ending the gladiator fights. You remember the movie Gladiator? I realize I'm dating myself because some of you were born after the movie came out. May God rest your soul someday. But anyway, the gladiators were these guys who would get inside these massive arenas and they would fight against each other. Now, this had gone on for over 500 years in Rome. It started roughly 100 and something odd years before Jesus, and it went on for 401 years after the birth or so of Jesus, and it all stopped because of one man, Telemachus. 
So what was going on is in this one particular fight, there were these two gladiators going at it. And the way that it would work is these guys would train and train and train. Then they would show up at the games. There would be tens of thousands of people, sometimes upwards of 40,000 people. It'd be like a modern day basketball or football game. And people would be gathered together cheering them on. But it was a fight to the death. Now, if you wounded the guy you were fighting against, he could hold up a finger. And then the emperor, if he were at the games, could decide whether or not the guy who was winning could kill him or was to show him mercy. But it was almost always to the benefit of the gladiator to kill him because if that guy heals up and gets better, he might come back with a vengeance next time and you might not be so lucky. When the emperor wasn't present, it was normal then for the audience to decide who lived and who died. And so the audience, by applause or sometimes with a thumbs up or a thumbs down, would decide who lived and who died. And this went on for hundreds and hundreds of years in Rome. And it all came to an end because one day, a particular Christian man named Telemachus came into town to pay some homage to his Savior. And when he got there, he heard this ruckus of tens of thousands of people gathered together. So he goes into the Colosseum. He finds, not the Colosseum, it's a smaller amphitheater. And he goes in and he finds this thing going on and he is just immediately immediately wrecked. Why are these two people trying to kill each other? And he goes down into the actual battleground and he tells them, stop, stop, stop. You shouldn't be doing this. You have no reason to be hurting each other and murdering each other in this way. The gladiators didn't exactly know what to do. They were kind of stunned for a minute, but then decided they'd put in all their time. And oh, by the way, they were about to receive all of the glory. Now, glory in that context which is different than the glory in the context of Jesus. Glory in that context meant you were going to get paid lots of money, you were going to get famous, you were going to get uh, praised by everybody else, cheering and chanting your name, talking about how amazing you were. There would be stories and songs and all kinds of things written about you. Sometimes there would be mur- murals and art put up about you, and this was the way to fame. There was no way they were going to trade their way to fame and popularity by stopping this thing that they've been preparing for their whole life. So when they kind of cast Telemachus aside, he didn't give up, though. They were ready to go back to fighting, and this time, he put himself right in the middle between them. And then one of the gladiators took out a sword and stabbed Telemachus. And the crowd began to cheer, and they grabbed whatever missile projectile they could find, rocks or anything else, and began to throw them at him until he died. And the emperor of Rome decided at that point that it was time for the games to end. It still took 13 years for the last games like this to occur. But it was all because one man said, stop fighting. Stop fighting. So what's the advantage of putting down our weapons? Well, it might get you killed. But what else is there? See, some of you, this isn't a marriage sermon. But some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about in your marriage. This isn't a prodigal child sermon. But some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about if you have a prodigal child. Some of you will know what this means for a boss or a co-worker like the Spirit's just already speaking. But I want to take a look at this question very specifically through the lens of very two very specific people. And we find those two people in Luke chapter 7. Verse 36. If you have a Bible, you know how to use it. Go ahead and turn there. No worries. If you don't, everything will be up here for you to follow along. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Let's just jump into the story and then I'll tell you what's happening as we go. 
When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, let's just stop there for a second. So <clears throat> you may have seen in the Passion of the Christ that Jesus created the first chair. We have no idea, by the way, if that's true. What most people did in that day is they usually had some sort of table and it would sit up off the ground and they would have these kind of like long pillows, you know, uh, and they would lean over them, usually with their feet going away from the table and their bodies going toward the table. And they would do, literally, when they say recline, they would be laying on the ground around the table. That's not always the way everybody did it, but that was pretty standard operating procedure, which sets the table so far. So this Pharisee, and if you don't know what a Pharisee is, it's one of the major religious groups of the day. But it's also one of the major groups that Jesus went head to head with. And it's the group primarily responsible for getting Jesus crucified later in the story. But at this point, he's still having multiple conversations with him. Which brings up a phenomenal question at this point in our story. Why is this Pharisee having Jesus over to lunch? If they can't stand him so much, why are they spending time with him? And we find the introduction to this earlier in the chapter in a story we didn't read. Jesus has just shown up to this new town. He's got this traveling ministry and he goes around with his disciples and he shows up at towns and he heals people and he does great things and that gives him the right then to talk about who he is and who God is. But people aren't quite sure what to make of Jesus. Just like many of you still, you're watching even online today. So in this particular town, in this particular circumstance, earlier in Luke 7, as Jesus comes upon the town, there's a funeral procession going on. And a widow's son has died. And all you need to know is right there in that little statement. See, the fact that she's a widow means she has no husband to provide for her. Her son then would have stepped into that role. He would have become the breadwinner. He would have taken care of the family. He probably would have become much more mature adult at a very young age. But now he's dead and she's desperate. And Jesus shows up as this is going on. And we're told that Jesus had compassion on this woman. So he raises her son from the dead. Now, look, I, I realize if you're visiting with us today, you go, see, that's why I have such a hard time with all these stories. I mean, who in the world would believe that? Well, I can tell you that's exactly what the Pharisee's thinking. So don't be surprised if you're like him. Because the reason the Pharisee had Jesus to lunch is to look into things for himself. I mean, come on. The Pharisee might have been there, might not have been there. Smaller town, you know, kind of feel. Somebody dies, it's a big deal, lots of people come. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, but he's got to be like, okay, come on. I've heard rumors, things have been passed around. Some people showed up, told us about Jesus. And then there's this rumor about raising a guy from the dead. I mean, come on. Let me go see for myself, is this guy worth anything at all? I know what I'll do. I'll have him to lunch. So while they're reclining around the table, the Pharisee has his glasses on of specifically analyzing, is this guy good enough for me to consider giving my time? Look at the next verse, verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Well, first thing to note, she heard, again, through the rumor mill, small town, you know, ancient Israel, she heard that, that Jesus was at this Pharisee's house, which was pretty normal. If you were wealthy and had influence, you would have well-known people over. If nothing else, it gave you credibility. It's not much different than a gladiator in the ring fighting for glory. Hey, I'm going to have this guy over because everybody will think I'm special. And she hears that Jesus is there, and she grabs her alabaster perfume. But it's interesting, she's a unique kind of woman. She's a sinful woman. 
Some translations say she's an immoral woman. We have every reason to believe, though it doesn't say it, because often when the Bible talks about people, it puts them in the most uh, generous terms possible. This was probably a prostitute. Now the question is, how did she get there? And the answer is, we don't know. There are many ways that a person can get to that lifestyle. Studies today tell us the human slave industry is one of the ways. Sometimes evil men with evil intentions will go into small villages like the ones that we support in India and will literally say to the families, hey, we'll give you money and we'll take your daughter and we'll take her into the city and we'll train her and get her an education. You know, here in this city where you have no home, you have no resources, you have no job, she just will, she'll die here, but we'll take care of her. And sometimes the parents maybe know in the back of their mind that this might not be true, but I'm getting money, and if there's any chance that that could be true, why not? That's why we have the Save the Girl program, and we come in and provide clothing and backpacks, and we say, keep your daughters in your home. We'll make sure they get to school here and get education. Isn't that amazing? I think we're up to or approaching 10,000, maybe even over 10,000. We're on our way there, girls in that program. The schools are now coming to us and begging us to get more girls in the program. Praise God. Yeah, you can clap for that. But it's not the only way. I mean, kidnapping, of course. Sometimes abusive homes or environments. Many studies have been done that show just how desperate it is. Sometimes just really bad choices leave people desperate. They don't have money to pay for things, and so they offer trading of services. However this lady got there, what we can know is this. She's not well-respected or loved or appreciated for what she does. Small town. I mean, if you're gonna survive, you gotta keep business going. But if you're gonna keep business going, how many homes have you wrecked along the way? So one of the ways that, that a person of this particular background would be able to support themselves was, uh, or sorry, to draw attention to themselves was an alabaster jar of perfume. This perfume would have been extremely expensive. Some estimate about a year's worth of wages. It's very hard sometimes when we talk about money in the Bible to really put things into context because money today is not at all like money in that day. Like most of you, while you may not have a ton of extra money, you have access to money. You may have family, you may have friends, you may have credit cards. You may have tapped all those out already, that's fine. But at some point, you had access. You may be able to have a mortgage or a car, things you could sell to get more money. You may be able to just go bankrupt and start over, which is miserable and painful, and I don't even recommend you do it. But in that day, you had no money, you had no money. Your only other option was to become an indentured servant, where if you owed somebody money, you would have to work for them until it was paid off. And if you couldn't pay it off in your lifetime, you would pass off the debt to your kids, and they would work for them until the debt was paid off. This is a big deal. So one of the ways that she was able to drum up interest in her business is perfume. I find it fascinating. She took the perfume to the house with her. I'm not sure her intentions 100%. I only know what it tells me next in verse 38. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them. And she poured perfume on them. 
you see the progression? Again, Luke covers so much ground in so little space, but do you see the progression? Jesus is reclining, probably leaning over some sort of pillow, facing the, the table in front of him. All the guests sitting, laying around that table. Usually they laid on one arm propped up with like a pillow propped up under them. But she comes in behind Jesus. And the moment that she sees him there, she loses it. She can't keep it together anymore. Why? My guess is the shame inside her has built up so profoundly. You may be wondering, what is shame? Well, I think many modern psychologists, counselors, and I think they've done a good job with this, will tell you there's a profound difference between shame and guilt. See, guilt is this acknowledgement that I've done something wrong. We're gonna see that here in the story. Shame is this belief that I'm not good enough. I don't measure up. I'm not lovable, nor am I worthy to be loved. So therefore, I walk around under this auspice that I'm never going to be worthy of love. And my shame can sometimes keep me from confessing my guilt. Because if nobody's ever going to love me for who I am or for what I've done, then there's no reason to bring it to anybody. Because at the end of the day, I can't trust anybody. See, it takes unbelievable courage to get over your fear and in this moment actually allow yourself to put down your weapon, to put down your shield, and to be this very, very, very painful four-letter word, vulnerable. And yes, I can count. But it's that word that we don't dare speak. It's hard enough being honest, right? It's even harder being transparent. But boy, it's almost impossible to be vulnerable. And she comes in with a jar, and there's Jesus, and she can't hold back anymore. Why? He's not looked at her, he's not talked to her, he's not said a word yet. Why? And the only thing that we can draw is, number one, the rumor mill, the same rumor mill that's gotten to the Pharisees got to her. She's heard stories. I mean, I hear he literally heals people. I hear that there's a tax collector, a tax collector. That's the one group of people that she can look at and go, now you guys are bad. The tax collectors are in his group. They don't just follow him around and listen to his teaching. One of them is one of his 12 disciples. And then maybe she was there or at least heard the rumor that he actually raised the kid from the dead. If he can do that, what can he do for me? And in that moment, she loses it. Now Luke has just set the stage for you because he wants you to see in corner A, we have a Pharisee. He is checking out Jesus, but he's checking him out from a distance, very safe, very protected, very guarded. He's got a sword and a shield, and he's ready to come at Jesus. But then we have this lady. Maybe she had a sword, but she dropped it at the door. Maybe she had a shield, but now she went from standing at his feet to kneeling down, and she is uncontrollably weeping. And see, she could have simply cried and wiped his feet off with her cloak, with her clothing. But she went this extra kind of weird step and started using her hair. Verse 39. 
When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him, what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. Verse 40, Jesus answered him. Wait a minute, he didn't say that out loud. Did you notice in verse 39? He said to what? Himself. Verse 40, Jesus answered him. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. First of all, Jesus does have spirit-driven insight. We see this throughout the Gospels. They'll say, and they were thinking, so Jesus said. This happens all the time. If you're a parent, though, you know a little bit about what this is like, right? You look at your child and you go, don't. (laughs) And they look at you confused, like, what? My one son, when I do this, he'll just start to smile. What, dad? I'm like, I know exactly what you were about to do. How do you know? I'm like, because I know you. Jesus just looks at the guy and says, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. I get the feeling there's a little bit of sarcasm in this. I'm not sure what to make of this Jesus guy. I got him over for lunch, but what you're about to see, and you'll read this in just a minute, what you're about to see is this Pharisee, he's not real sure of Jesus. Why in the world would Jesus let that kind of woman even in his presence? See, the Pharisees are the best of the best of the best. There are over 600 do's and don'ts in the Old Testament law, and nobody kept them better than the Pharisees. This is why Jesus says at one point, look, if you want to get into heaven, your righteousness better surpass that of the Pharisees. Whose righteousness can surpass that of the best of the best of the best? And that's his point. See, Pharisee, you're not as good as you think that you are. Some of you sitting here today, that might be your story. You might think you got it all together, that you are good enough. What Jesus is saying both to Simon and to me and to you is none of you are good enough. You're like, well, I don't get that. I know, but stick with the story. Verse 41, two people owed money to a certain money lender, he says to Simon the Pharisee. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Just unpack for a second. You're like, I don't know what that means. Yeah, exactly. So, a denarii is um, basically a day's worth of wages. So a denarii is um, when, um, if you work for a whole day, you get paid that. So 500 denarii would be about a year and a half. 50 denarii would be about a what? Month and a half. That's the analogy. So the analogy is whatever you make in a year and a half, one guy owes a debt of a year and a half's worth of wages. Wow. Another person owes a debt of a month and a half's worth of wages. But here's the problem, Jesus says. Neither, verse 42, had money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of what? Both. Now, which of them will love him more? (laughs) Which one's going to love him more? The one who owes a year and a half. I mean, that's simple math, right? Whatever your biggest debt is, if I came to it today and said, tell me your biggest debt, I'm gonna pay it today. You're like, really, Pastor? Yeah, sure, why not? I'll write you a check, it won't be any good, but sure. <laughs> but let's say I came to you and said, hey, whatever, what is the smallest amount you owe? I'll erase that one. Now, are you gonna be more thankful if I erase your biggest one or your smallest one? Now, you're probably gonna be thankful for all of them, right? But who's gonna be more thankful and, and Simon answers, verse 43, Simon replies, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. I love the way he answered because he's revealing his heart. 
I'm here to check you out, but I don't know that I believe in you. Well, I suppose. Really, you suppose? Really? This isn't like the most obvious thing in the world, Simon. The problem is Simon knows he's walking into a trap. And he can't figure out how to win. So instead of giving up the fight, laying down his weapons, he's going to keep punching. And by the way, we do this with Jesus all the time. And Jesus looks at him, but I love this. Jesus doesn't condemn him. Jesus doesn't judge him. He just simply says, you've judged correctly. Good job, Simon. And what is Jesus trying to say? Simon, you don't owe God as much as she does because you've only broken the rules a little bit. She's broken a lot of rules. But Simon, who's gonna love God more? If I were to erase your debt, Simon, even though you think you're perfect, you're not. And if I were to erase her debt, Simon, and she knows she's not perfect, you know it. Everybody in here knows it. She's famous in this little town. Which one of you is going to appreciate me more? Now, the irony, the thing that's lying underneath all of this, and we'll get to that by the time we get to the end of the text, who has the right to forgive sins? All right, let me put it in another way, because you're like, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Let me put it in another way. Okay, so um, your neighbor runs over your kid with the car. And your neighbor goes to another neighbor and says, man, I'm so sorry that I hit him with the car. And your neighbor says, I forgive you. Would anybody say that's right? Of course not. But if I go to the person that I hit and I go to their family and I go to their parents and say, look, I did this and it's wrong and I'm sorry, can that person forgive me? Yes, you're like, this is a weird analogy. I know. But the point what Jesus is trying to make, the point that he's striving to, and don't miss this, because if you're wrestling with who Jesus is, this is critical to understanding, because Simon the Pharisee is wrestling with it too, and he doesn't have a box to put Jesus in yet. He wants a nice and clean little box. He's like all the other prophets, Jeremiah and Elijah and Elisha. He's just like them, right? He does miracles, he speaks for God, but something's different, and everybody knows it. When Jesus speaks, he doesn't speak like them. He doesn't say, God told me. He says, you've heard, but I say. Well, how can he speak on his own behalf? Because he doesn't believe he's a prophet. He doesn't believe he's a good man. He doesn't believe he's a priest, a, a preacher. He believes he's God. And so when he forgives sins, there's power in it. But see, We'll never come to Jesus to forgive our sins if we don't think we have anything that needs forgiven. Because see, I know what some of you are thinking. I'm not Jesus. I don't have like this special insight thing going on. But I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, I'm neither a Pharisee who's been perfect, but neither am I a sinful, immoral prostitute woman who's done all kinds of evil things. I'm just a normal, average person who lives a good life, tries to be good and kind. I tip really well. I help people when I can. I'm good. And Jesus is saying in this story through Luke, see, the most sinful among us and the most righteous among us both need a debt erased. Both have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But on this day, only one is going to find forgiveness. 
So really, there's a couple questions we ought to be wrestling with. Who do I most identify with in the story? Do I more identify with Simon, or do I more identify with the woman? Or do I more identify with Jesus? See, Jesus teaches us when we meet people who are hurting and broken, you know what they don't need? They don't need more condemnation. The world has plenty of that. Do you know what they need? Mercy. This is why Jesus actually says to the Pharisees at another point, he says, woe to you. You're so careful. You even go through your herb garden and you cut your little uh, herbs into tenths and make sure that you give a tenth of it to God. And he gets the first tenth. And you're so careful to that. But yet you look at another person who's hurting and struggling and you do not even show them mercy. You condemn those who are sinning, but you don't even lift a finger to help them with their burden. That's why he calls them hypocrites, which actually the Greek word for hypocrite is an actor on a stage. Somebody who comes out and just plays a part. You're just playing a part, man. You're not real. You're faking it. Oh, by the way, some Pharisees actually come to this conclusion too. A guy named Nicodemus, we see him in John 3 and we see him again helping to bury Jesus and he ends up coming to faith in Christ. So it's not true for all Pharisees. It's just that most of them couldn't let go of their power and their prestige to actually humble themselves and receive a savior. I find that sometimes when I talk to people who are coming from different backgrounds, depending on what they carry, it all depends on how loud their shame is screaming, whether or not they could come to Jesus. Because see, when my shame screams really loud and I believe that I'm not good enough or worthy enough to be loved, deep down inside, what I'm gonna do is pick up a shield or pick up a sword or pick up a spear and I'm either going to constantly defend or I'm gonna constantly attack. You know people like this. You might even be a people like this. What would it take to lay him down? I meet men who come back and women too who come back from fighting in some of the different wars. Like my friend's dad, And they're so ashamed of some of the things that they've done. Some of them will look at me and say, I'm so honored that I served my country, but I gotta be honest. Some of the things I had to do, I'll never tell anybody about. And they carry this badge that what they've done can never be forgiven. And sometimes some of them will talk to me and say, yeah, I know I'm messed up, I know I'm dealing with this, but you know what, I'm not like that guy. At least I came back with all my body parts. Here's the thing. See, we do the same thing spiritually. We look at other people and their sins and we say, but I'm not as bad as them. And we look at other people and their struggles and say, well, I'm not as far gone as them. And so therefore, I'm doing good. Then you're no better than a Pharisee. See, the difference between the Pharisee and the sinful woman is not the sin. The difference is their approach to God. And sometimes when we meet people like this, we gotta learn to be Jesus. Jesus was not condemning or judgmental of either, but he simply spoke the truth in as patient and a loving way as is knowable. I love the way Brene Brown wrote a book called Rising Strong. She says this, hurt is hurt. And every time we honor our own struggle and the struggles of others by responding with empathy and compassion, the healing that results affects all of us. Luke 7, verse 44. Then he returned, then he, sorry, then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, again, Luke does such a good job of setting the stage. Do you get this? So he's reclining at the table. He's been chatting with Simon. She's back there weeping and making a big scene. He's looking at Simon. All of a sudden he turns and he makes eye contact with her and he looks right at her, but he doesn't talk to her. Who's he talking to? Simon. Why? Why is that powerful? 
Well, come on. When people look at this woman, they only have one of two kinds of thoughts, right? Either the men who look at her and go, love a night with that. Or the women look at her and go, that evil woman. Can you believe what she did to so-and-so's family? I cannot believe what she did to my cousin. The only time anybody ever looks at her is because they want something from her or they want to take something away from her. But when Jesus looks at her, it's different. Jesus isn't looking at her and condemning her, nor is he dismissing her, nor does he want to use her. Jesus looks right at her. And then notice what he says to Simon. Do you see this woman? Simon, do you see her? Do you look at her? Do you recognize her? Are you paying attention? Because from the moment she came in, Simon, all you've thought about is you and me. And you've ignored her. In fact, look at what Jesus says. I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Okay, so in this society, no cars, no bikes, right? We travel by animal or by foot. So you thought your feet stank at the end of the day? You have no idea. We are talking covered in dirt and sweat and mud, and because we travel a lot and there's a lot of animals around, you can imagine what other landmines may be on the feet and now on her hair. And now all the ladies in the room just felt like they need to go home and take a bath, right? And the whole point is when you would come into a home, there would be water there, and you would wash your hands, and they would have one for washing your feet. And those who are really wealthy or prominent would often have servants who would do this for you. Jesus says, I came into your home, Simon. Again, this tells you Simon's perspective. You didn't even think enough of me to treat me like you would a common guest. Simon is not there to hang out with Jesus. Simon is there to try to discern this thing so that he could keep his power. You didn't even treat me like a normal house guest. But from the moment she walked in, she's not stopped wiping my feet with her tears and her hair. You did not give me a kiss, a standard greeting, verse 45. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. Again, another sign of care over a guest. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little only loves a little. Two things to note here. Jesus is not saying because she brought in the perfume and cried on his feet, she's forgiven. Jesus is saying because she did this, you know she's forgiven. In other words, somewhere in her story, she got the concept of who Jesus was and what he's doing. I'm sure she didn't understand the whole thing, but she got enough to know here with him, I'm safe. Here with him, I can lay down my sword and my shield. I don't have to hide. I don't have to fight. I don't have to run anymore here with him I can have courage to actually be vulnerable and once she made that decision in her heart Jesus says she was forgiven you could tell she was forgiven how could you tell look at how she's living her love can't help but overflow but Simon you don't have much love in you because you don't think you need it so therefore she's going to love greater than you Luke 7, 48, then Jesus said to her, remember, he's been looking at her the whole time. 
your sins are forgiven. How many nights or mornings after did she wish that she could hear those words? How many times had the Holy Spirit whispered in her ear, stop doing this, don't do it again. You don't have to go here. How many times did she see families passing by that she took part in breaking up their relationships and maybe even wonder to herself, do they even know? But Jesus looked at her and he knew full well all that she had done and yet said, your sins are forgiven. Brene Brown again, Rising Strong says, I believe that vulnerability that willingness to show up and be seen with no guarantee of outcome is the only path to more love, belonging, and joy. Look, I know this is a very serious message. Not a lot of laughter in this message, right? It's because I need you to get this point. Some of you desperately need peace. You desperately need joy. And it only comes through forgiveness. And forgiveness, it begins first with our walk with God and then it can spread out to others. But if it doesn't begin here, it never gets where you need it to go. And what Jesus wants to bring you is something you never thought you needed, but the only way you can get it is through vulnerability. That willingness to show up and say, Jesus, I know I need you, I know that. I got lots of questions. I got lots of things I gotta figure out. Steps I know that have to be taken. And I'm terrified maybe. But I'm gonna have the courage to lay down my shield, put down my sword, to stop running and just in this moment say, here I am. And now in that moment, be able to find God, take you in his arms and wipe your tears. Luke 7, 49. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? There's a hint of sarcasm in there. There's also a hint of questioning. Maybe some of the room did one, maybe some the other. How does he think he has a, Elijah couldn't forgive sins. Moses couldn't forgive sins. Abraham couldn't forgive sins. But he thinks he has the right to forgive sins because he's not just another prophet. And then verse 15, this may be the most beautiful thing you need to hear today. Jesus said to the woman, Woman, I added that part. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Scientists will tell you that one of, if not perhaps the, the strongest sense in your body is your olfactory senses, your sense of smell. This is why when you drive past fast food restaurants, you immediately want to stop and eat, even if you just ate. The smell of fried food or french fries or whatever your you know, vice of choice is draws you in. But it's also why you can remember the exact smell of certain amazing and traumatic moments of your life because there are these things where they get connected together. I think by the mercy of God, he connected his peace that smells to this woman now like a beautiful fragrance. The very fragrance that perhaps she was using to attract her customers before is now the fragrance that she will identify and associate with the statement, go in peace. Perhaps the greatest mercy that Jesus could have bestowed that day. But let me leave you with this. A Christian counselor, 
by the, guy, by the name of Ed Welch. I was listening to a podcast interview with him, and he made this powerful statement. He said, look, if you have experienced shame, then you are the very person that Jesus is coming after. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I'm neither a Pharisee nor a prostitute, then you may be thinking I don't identify with anybody in the story. But listen, if you've ever experienced shame, if you've ever felt like you are unlovable or like whatever you've done is not worthy for you to receive love, then listen, you are the very person Jesus came to seek and to save. But the question is, will you run? Will you attack? Will you continue to defend? Will you lay it all down? And say, here I am. What I'm gonna do right now is I'm gonna send us into communion. But listen, don't even move yet, not even the communion service. We're gonna take communion, okay? And what communion means, for those of you visiting with us today, maybe if you're watching at home, right now while I'm talking, just run and grab some bread and some juice. I don't even care if it's orange juice and pretzels. Whatever you got, grab it. The bread represents the body of Christ. The juice represents the blood of Christ. And when we take them, we're simply celebrating the fact that all of us sinners, no matter how great our sin is, come to the cross the same way, desperately in need of a savior. What I want you to do is I want you to spend this communion time talking to God. Look, if you're visiting with us today, you might be like, man, I did not plan on God messing with me today, but he is right now. I just want you to spend this time talking to him. Because at the end of communion, I'm gonna come up and we're gonna sing and I'm gonna invite you to make a decision today. A life-changing decision. A decision that says, I'm not gonna leave here as a Pharisee. I'm gonna leave here as a sinful person who was forgiven by the grace of God. I'm gonna call you to leave something with Jesus today. I'm gonna call you to make a decision and say, I'm gonna give my life to Jesus even if I don't know the wild ride he's gonna take me on yet. I'm gonna ask you to no longer live in shame but instead to come out of that and find the peace that God has for you. The question is, Will you receive it? Communion servers, go ahead. I'm gonna say a prayer and then I'll hand it to you to talk to God about whatever it is you need to do with him. Heavenly Father, thank you for the mercy of Jesus that washes away our sin. Thank you, God, for this powerful story that shows us just really how good Jesus is. He truly is not like any other religious leader ever. Not only does he treat us mercifully as we do not deserve, but he also looks at us and says, I forgive you. I don't have words for that apart from thank you. God, move in this place and do what you would in our lives in Jesus' name.